Is what's happening or is it my reaction to what's happening? And I can stop and turn it around right then if I choose to, or I can go on and have a miserable day. That's my choice. And that made me real mad when people would tell me that. And I said, but you don't understand. This happened. I mean, would you dance if this happened? And they said, no, but I wouldn't find it necessary to have a second ass fit either. Said there's something in between that, you know, it's all better behavior. And uh, <laughs> and you can't carry grudges with promptly. You can't carry those grudges because you've got to promptly get rid of them. You know, it takes a lot of fun out of misery. You can't you can't fill your little garbage bag in the Nicky shop. You know, you, you you can't do that. You have to take each thing as it comes. It's called dealing with life on life's terms. I never thought about doing that. You know, you've got to think about it and nurture those things and, and build them up and uh, make them worse than they were and then feel more pain. And My God, you know, I used to love to suffer. And you'd do me wrong today and 15 years from today I could tell you how terrible you were and how much it hurt me. Now, you did it to me once, but I did it to me from then on because I didn't promptly get rid of my resentment. You know, sometimes what I do wrong that day is resist something, and it doesn't hurt you. And the means I always see myself for having done that to me one more time. Because, you know, when I take in those negative feelings, I'm doing it to me. And I no longer can go on and rationalize and justify what I did. You know, you said, I'd say, well, you deserve that. Yeah, I gave it to you, but you had it coming. Look what you did to me. And instead, I find that, you know, you don't deserve so much out of my negative, and what I give out, I get back. That is the spiritual principle. And whenever you're disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with you. Yeah! I hated that statement. I hated it. In the 12 and 12, it says it's a spiritual axiom. You know, that's a truth that happens again and again and again. And I'm, I'm looking at that and I said, how can that be? And it's because my reaction is not good. My reaction is not good to what's happening around me. Because it disturbs me. And it what disturbs me, it means that I am not accepting reality. You know, like I said, you don't have to like it to accept it. And it's when I fight the reality of the situation, I don't like it. And I fight that reality that it hurts me. Because the reality, or, you know, reality is the truth. And truth doesn't change. This is the truth. But right this minute and right this now, this is all we have. So... Um, all right, it says another thing in, uh, about uh, the tenth step. It says, here's where you begin to have some type of emotional balance. I never had emotional anything, much less balance. I don't think I ever had a balance. You know, I was either all the way over here or all the way over here. My pendulum would swing. Boy, would it swing. You know? And it took a long time to where I could get it started in the middle. It still goes, but it's more in the middle now. And I don't have to go way out here. You know, it's just funny. This is a wonderful weekend. Now, how do you feel after you get home? How do you feel after you get home? I used to go home from retreats and conferences and what have you, and I'd be on such a high, I would just, you know, I pretty near, you know, floated home. And I would get home and everything was wonderful, and then see there I was going back to the real world. I wasn't in my little protected environment anymore. And after two or three days, I would go right down to the bottom of the floor. The absolute pit. I had been to the Everest, and now I'm in the pit. And I couldn't understand why. And doing the inventory, I found out why. 
all these wonderful things you hear, all this wonderful sharing that you do, sounds good, makes you feel good. But if you don't put it to work, it's going to go down to the pit. Because once you know and you don't act upon that knowledge, you will go down. So that's just a warning. I did that time and time again. I would go down until I figured it out from doing the inventory. But that's what I was doing. I was listening to it, but I wasn't practicing it. And it's real easy to get into that because we do get sort of laid back at one of these. But you've got to go back now and we've got to work. Okay, promptly. <laughs> there you go again. Say that dishonesty. Boy, that was the one that hurt me so much to have to be right in the middle of a sentence and say, I'm a liar. <laughs> You know, people will look at you weird. Now, program people won't, but that whole world out there will, you know. You'll be standing there and somebody will say, well, did you do so-and-so? And you say, oh, yes, I did. I did not do that. I just lied to you. My sister didn't take it real well, you know, because I did it quite frequently. And she'd say, you lie to me a lot, don't you? And I said, as a matter of fact, I did. I don't have to do that nearly so much with her anymore. Because, you see, I had a tendency to tell her what I thought she wanted to hear in certain instances. Because I was trying to protect her. You know, instead of... Now, let's, let's take another look at honesty. Let's be honest, but let's not be brutal. And I had problem with that. Because when I became honest, I became brutally honest. You would say to me, how do you like my hair? It looks like shit. You look like you put your hand in a light socket. Did you do it in a blender this morning? I was being honest. <laughs> I found that there, you know, there's another little thing called tact. And I, I knew a tact, but I didn't know much about tact. I was told it was a virtue, and I, I don't know that it is, but, but it was something that I even have difficulty with today. Because I have a tendency to say before I think. And I'll tell you something I found out about me in step 10. There's all kinds of different lies that you can get into, and some of them are fun. And by that I mean, I can, it's like there's another person that lives inside of me. And I hear myself saying things and doing things the same time you do. It's like it passes the mental process altogether. Now, I don't know if you have this phenomenon, but it's weird. I'll give you an example. I was working out with a girlfriend at the mall in a P.I. booth not too long ago. And my husband had said to me when he found out I was going to the mall that day, he said, you know, I'd like you to pick me up some sealer for our fountain. And I said, okay. So during the break, while we were being relieved for lunch, this girl, Jennifer, one I sponsor, we decided we'd go down to Sears. For old Sears, here we go again. I seem to be addicted to Sears Roebuck. And I don't know why I've had so many rotten experiences there. <laughs> That's right. But, you know, this time it's going to be different. <laughs> and it was different. Because I went in there and we're walking along. We got back to the paint department. This young man came over and he said, may I help you? And I said, yes. I'm a serious personal shopper and I'm here to see how well you do in your department. Now... If you were to have someone come in and ask for a sealer for their bird bath, which for one of our products would you have to recommend? And he said, just a minute. And he began to look through his little book, and then he came up and he said, it would be this. And I said, good, I'll take a gallon. And he looked at me and I said, 
I said, you passed your test. If you'll give me your name and employee number, I'll be glad to make out my report. And so he gave me his name and employee number, and I wrote it down, and we're walking out with the gallon of Sears. And Jennifer turns to me, and she said, I didn't know you worked for Sears. <laughs> and I said, I don't. And she said, why didn't you warn me you were going to do that? And I said, I heard it the same time you did. <laughs> and she said, you're kidding. And I said, absolutely not. I said, once I heard it get started, I had to see it to the end to see what was going to happen. I said, it was an adventure. And she said, but wasn't it dishonest? And I said, yes. If you must know, yes. I said, it was not totally honest. Just a little bit dishonest. I said, it was a lie, Jennifer. And she said, well, how are you going to make an amends for that? And I said, I'm going to write to Sears and tell them what a nice young man they had in the paint department who was extremely helpful. And he was courteous. I said, that's how I'm making amends for playing that joke on him. I said, I might do something good for him, you know. And she said, well, I was just wondering. I said, well, I said, that's what I had planned on doing as I was walking off. But I said, it's funny. I said, because in my mind, you see, I played a joke on someone, and it wasn't a lie. But see, Jennifer caught me. Jennifer caught me. God had her right there to tell me. But now, I'm serious to tell you, I never know when one of those attacks is coming on. And I'm always as surprised to hear what my mind does as you are. It's amazing. And, and I don't know what kind of defense against that, but you see with the promptly and the know that it is a lie, I can go back and I can make amends if an amends is due. I don't feel that I hurt the boy any, but I did write the letter. And uh, I got a thank you letter from Sears, you know, for telling me about their employee. But... Like I say, that's, the, that's some of the things that you notice. Now, I used to have emotional hangovers. You ever had an emotional hangover? You know, you can get so mad and have such a fit that you're just sick for two days, screaming and hollering, and you just, just wear yourself to a nub. I had a neighbor that I, I witnessed, you know, and I thought, you know, he needs his program bad. He went out to his lawnmower, and he started to crank the lawnmower, and he'd crank and he'd crank and he'd crank, and nothing would happen. And I, I began to feel sorry for him because it was hot and he was an old fella. And he would crank and he would crank. And then I saw him go off to his shed and he came back with a ball team hammer. <laughs> and he threatened his lawnmower. He said, if you don't start, this is what you're going to get. And he did and it didn't. And he did. He beat it until the house and the wheels fell off. And he left it laying, and then later on in the afternoon, I saw him come back with a new lawnmower, and he rolled it over to the old lawnmower, and I don't know what he said, but in my mind, it was, say this, you want to look like this, don't start some morning. <laughs> and I began to feel a little more compassion for his wife. Okay. The purpose of this step is to acquire the habit of an accurate self-appraisal. To look at yourself honestly and see what you're doing. And you know, many times God puts other people in my path for me to take a look at me. 
That's the truth. And it's scary. You know, I, when I was in Hawaii last, you know, year before last, uh, we, I was down in the Waipio Valley on the big island of Hawaii. And it's a real remote area, and there are no cars, no telephones, no nothing. You're just down there. And uh, there was an accident that happened. Uh, we were fording a river, and we went under uh, in a vehicle <laughs> that was supposed to get across the river. And um, so there we were, stranded in the middle of the river. And there were about six of us that were in this four-wheel drive vehicle that were supposed to get across the river. And this one guy that I nicknamed Mary Pearl, he began to have a screaming fit. And he was saying, I'm going to be stranded down here. I'm going to lose this whole day of my vacation. I can't believe this. I just can't believe this. And I went to say, believe it, mozo. But I didn't say it, you know. I went over. Of course, I will have to admit that the beautiful Hawaiian guy didn't carry him to the shore. <laughs> you know, I became weak and defenseless and couldn't swim right on the spot. I didn't say anything. I just looked it. But I sat over there and I waited under the, the beautiful palm trees with the ocean lapping at my feet. It didn't seem too bad a place to be stranded. Of course, I wouldn't spend the rest of my life there, but... You know, it wasn't that bad, and it was an all-day uh, all ordeal, because the first rescue vehicle grounded out, too. <laughs> it was one of those, it got to be funny. It really got to be funny. But this gentleman was so upset, and he made himself physically sick with the fits that he threw. And I thought, you know, he's going to be... And the, the, the irony of this was, I saw him two or three islands later, a week or so, and he was still talking about this tragic day that he had. And I thought, you know, it's funny. It was only in your attitude and what you do in a situation like that. But I knew where he was coming from because I used to be just like that. And I was so grateful that I don't have to be like that anymore. I think it's so neat when God puts people like that in our path. You know, have you ever had anyone in your group that you couldn't stand? There's always seems to be one of them in the group, you know. Somebody that's always unhappy about everything you do and bitching and griping and carrying on. And you get rid of that one. They finally, they'll quit. And you'll think, ta-da, we've outlived them. And then you get a new one. And I wondered about that over the years. And, you know, I learned in that inventory that those people are good for me because they teach me how not to be. I bet I taught a lot of people how not to be for a long time. Okay. I think that's all I'm going to say on uh, the fact that Self-discipline was not something I enjoyed. It wasn't anything that I looked forward to. And my sponsor kept telling me the, the hardest thing that I was ever going to have to do was keep my mouth shut because I felt like I had an obligation to respond to everything that happened in this world. You know, people, uh, you, you have to fix it for them. You just have to fix it. I saw uh, uh, on the plane going back from Oregon, we had a stop in Salt Lake City last time. And there was a man that got off the plane in Salt Lake City and left his coat I knew he had because the stewardess had taken it from him, and I didn't see her give it back. And then later she was running around in Dallas with this coat thing. Whose coat is this, you know? And I didn't have to fix that or say anything about it. Now, that may seem tacky, but that man was not my responsibility. And that girl, her, her duty was not my responsibility either. And I don't know for a fact that was his coat, but I did see him get on with one, and I didn't see him get off with one. But I don't see everything. But before, I would have been in there trying to fix that and, and following that man down the jetway saying, Sir, sir, you forgot to call. You know. Your 10-step can be kept like a journal. 
It'll show you what God can do for you that you can't do one day at a time. It'll show you some of the little miracles that are happening in your life that you might miss otherwise. Sometimes reading back, you'll begin to see where the miracle started. Well, on the eleventh step, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. That simplified my prayer life tremendously. Did you ever try to say, well, now, God, I want you to, I want you to help Jane. I want you to give Jane good health. Her health is not well. And Betty, I want you to take care of Betty. She's having trouble in her marriage. I want you to straighten her husband out so she won't be so unhappy. And God, I want you to give this one money. And then I want you, and I begin to give God all of his marching orders. You know. And this step says, that's not what we're supposed to do. We pray only for the knowledge of his will for us. All I need to know is God's will for me and the power to carry it out. That's all I need to know. When it comes to praying for you and people say, would you pray for me? I'll say yes. But now this is what I'm going to pray. God, your will in their life. That's it. God bless that person. Your will in their life. Do for them what they need. I have no idea what each and every person in this room needs. And if I were to tell you what I think I need, it's usually not what I need. It's what I want. Because I have learned more from the tragedies that have come in my life than I have the good things, unfortunately. Now, I want to tell you something about the power of prayer. Don't discount ever the power of prayer. J.D., after we were in the program a little while, J.D. got cancer. And I was terrified. I was so terrified. And I felt like, it's not fair. We're just getting back together. We're getting a relationship going. And now he's going to be snatched out of my life. It's not fair. And I got mad at God. Now, when I get mad at you... You know my supreme punishment? I won't talk to you. I'll deprive you of my presence. I'll hurt you, boy. That's the real self-centered individual. <laughs> and that's the way I would do God. I wouldn't talk to him because I was mad at him. I said, you know, God, I know you're in charge of all these things, and then here you let this happen. And I'm mad, and I'm not going to talk to you. And so I didn't talk to him. But, oh, I was so miserable, and I was so fearful. And I was trying to put up this big, brave front when I was around J.D. Big C, no big problem. You can lick the big C. Oh, God, look, alcoholism. You know, big C's nothing. And inside, I was dying, dying. And when J.D. would go to work, I would sit and cry for hours. And then I would put ice cubes and cucumbers on my eyes before he'd come home so he wouldn't know that I'd been crying the whole time he'd been gone. And he'd walk in, and I'd be happy, cheerful. And I would be dying on the inside. I didn't want to talk about it to anybody because, you see, if you talk about it, it becomes more real. I was still in the shock and the denial of it. I didn't want it to be, and, and I, therefore I wasn't going to talk about it. And so one night, one of the girls I sponsored called me, and she said, What's the matter with you? Because I was, you know, I was really into the good sobbing. And, uh, and you know, the thing of it is, I wasn't crying for him. I was crying for me. Because I was so hurt by it, and I was so frightened by it. It wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't that he was going to suffer. It wasn't that he might die. But it was what was going to happen to me. My God, the self-centeredness in that, you know. But Linda called that night, and she said, Murph, what's the matter with you? And I said, I don't want to talk about it, Linda. And she says, well, is there anything? I said, did you hear what I said? I don't want to talk about it. And I hung up. Now, Linda loved me. And she called everybody in the group, and she said, Something's wrong with Mark. 
Bad wrong. Let's all pray for her. Now, I don't know what they prayed or how they prayed, and that's not important to me. But what's important was somewhere that night between 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, and as I was sitting there crying, it was like peace washed right over me. All the fear went away. And I knew it was going to be okay. Now, I didn't know if that meant J.D. was going to live, J.D. was going to die, what was going to happen. I had no idea. But it was an inner knowing that everything was going to be okay. It was going to be okay. They did that for me. They loved me. So the prayer of, the prayer of your group for you is immeasurable. And when you get to a place that you can't pray for yourself, for God's sake, ask someone to pray for you. And they can pray for you till you're able to do it for yourself. And J.D. went into surgery, and they removed that, and he's fine today, and that's been 11 years ago. You know? But that was his miracle. My miracle was I wasn't afraid. I knew it was going to be okay. And it was what they did for me. You see, they did for me with God what I couldn't do for myself. You notice it tells us in the book that God will do for us. That's one of our promises, what we can't do for ourselves. A lot of times your group will do for you what you can't do for yourself. Think about how they love you before you can love yourself. How they can accept you before you can accept you. You know, I usually don't know. I couldn't tell you exactly what God's will is for me. But I know what God's will is not by experience. I know the things that I do that are not God's will. It's pretty easy. You know those. There's sets of guidelines of, of good conduct and behavior that you know. But when I don't know what I'm supposed to do, when I get up in the morning and I turn my will and my life over to God, I do what's right in front of me to do. Knowing that God will put these things in my path as I need them as the course of my day goes on. God will tell me. Have you ever had a decision that you couldn't decide what you wanted to do, a major decision? I want to share with you uh, one that I had with a girl that I sponsored. This girl's husband was practicing, and he was a teacher, and she was a teacher in the same school district, and he drove the school bus. Now, here's the lives of 50 or 60 children every morning being put in jeopardy because he's taking his pills and he's drinking his booze, and there he is. And she said, you know, if I report him, he'll most certainly lose his job. We may lose our home, and if he finds out, we'll, we'll, our marriage will go down the tooth. And she said, but I cannot live knowing that maybe a child's going to be hurt. She said, if a child gets hurt, I'll never forgive myself. And she says, what should I do? And I told her, I don't know, but we'll pray about it because, you know, I don't know, like I say, what you ought to do. That's the reason I have to be very careful in sponsoring people because, you know, you think you'd know, but you don't know. And so we began to pray, and one day she came to me and she said, you know, I still don't know. And I said, well, why don't you try this? Why don't you tell God what you're going to do? Make a plan of action and tell God you're going to do it. And then if you're not supposed to do it, to stop you. And she said, all right. So she called me one morning and she said, this is the morning, I'm going to go in. I've talked to God and I'm going to go in and I'm going to turn him in because I can't live like this anymore. I can't live in this fear that some child's going to be harmed because his drinking is getting progressively worse every morning. 
And so she went to school that morning. And the principal wasn't there right that minute when she got there, and she left word with the secretary that she wanted to talk with him later on that morning. And after a while, the secretary called her and she said, the principal wants to talk with you. And he told her, he said, you know, we found it necessary to fire your husband this morning. He arrived in the bus drunk. You see, she didn't have to do that. She had just to be willing. Just to be willing. And then God did for her what she couldn't do for herself, the way it would not be. And I thought that was a neat miracle. That was a neat miracle for her. I love the 11th step because it is the miracle step to me. I learned so much about life. I learned so much about me and you through meditation. Now, when I came in the program, I was big on meditation books. I'd never thought about meditation except doing yoga and, nope, you know, doing something really what I considered weird and far out. Today, I don't consider anything weird and far out if it works for you. I really don't. But, that, you know, every morning I'd get up and I'd read my ODAT, the 24-hour book, each day a new beginning, God calling, the upper room, the daily word, the guidepost. Um, now I'm here to tell you it's hard to meditate on 25 things. But you see, I never did a little bit of anything. Do it till you die on the spot, man. You've got to meditate. Well, you know, by the time you get all that red, that's going to take you about 30, 40 minutes. Well, you know, you don't have too much time. And I couldn't edit, I couldn't hold a single thought in my head 10 seconds. And people would say, shut your mind, just let everything go. <laughs> Is there anybody that can do that? Can you totally turn your mind off to all thoughts? I can't. After all these years, I can't make my mind go completely, totally blank. I have to put something in there. And so I found that when I meditate, if I take one spiritual truth, and just put that in there and try to relax and not force anything and sometimes I have to keep going you know in the beginning I would do it like maybe 10-15 seconds maybe a minute and then gotta go to the grocery store would come through and I would say no and I would go back and I had to discipline myself and keep going back as many times as necessary until now I can meditate for quite a period of time without breaking that train of thought. But it's an acquired discipline. You just have to learn and stay with it and keep going back to it. But I found that it was much easier for me if I read one meditation in the morning. Now, that doesn't mean I don't read out of the big book or some of our literature, but when I get ready to meditate or whatever, I'll read maybe a, well, my spiritual material, and I'll sit there and I'll read that, and I may or may not meditate on what I've read that morning. Now, what's will tell you about one morning, I was sitting there, and I had a big aquarium, big old 75-gallon aquarium, and I was watching my fish just swim around. It's very restful and peaceful to watch fish swim, except in my tank. I had vicious fish. I, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'd try to sit there and meditate and watch one eat another one, you know. That's until I learned that there's some fish you don't put with other fish, you know. But I thought they were pretty and they'd all look so good together. But, you know, some things that just look good don't always go together. But I was sitting there looking at that fish tank one morning, and I had been worried for days about our financial situation. It seemed to be getting progressively worse. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do about it. And I had thought about this situation, and then all of a sudden one day I got this telephone call, and a guy offered me a job. Now, I, hadn't, I wasn't even looking for a job, 
But this guy said that we have a resume that we have of yours from well, way back when. And he said, I just wanted to know, would you be interested in this position? Now, he told me it was a, it was a you know, over $2,000 a month was a nice job in Arkansas. And uh, he said, uh, we'd like to know if you'd be interested. And I said, well, you'll have to let me check with my spiritual advisor. And he said, well, how long will that take? And I said, well, give me about a week and I'll call you next Tuesday. Or you can call me and I'll let you know if I'm interested. Well, you know, people who are wanting jobs don't do that, you know. Well, I didn't know that I wanted a job. I didn't know. It just appeared to me that it looked like I was going to have to go back to work. Because I had quit work after J.D. had been sober a year. And that was a miracle. And I didn't know what to do about this situation. Now, I didn't say anything to J.D. because I didn't want him to sway my decision one way or another. Now, that may be right or wrong, but that's how I did it. And I would pray and I would ask God, what would you have me do? And I didn't get an answer. And this is where I had uh, decided on the technique like I told the little girl that day. Because, you see, what I said to God was, God, the morning, that I, the Tuesday morning came around and I didn't know any more than I did the previous week. And I said, I'm going to take that job offer and go really look into it and probably take it unless you can give me a reason why I don't need to do that. Stop me. We got up that morning. I was fixing J.D. his breakfast, and I'm sitting down, and he said, you know something? And I said, what? He said, I'm so grateful you don't work anymore. Do you realize how much our marriage has grown by us having time to be together? Because J.D. worked nights, and I worked days. And I said, yeah, it has. He said, I am so grateful that God has given us the means that you do not have to work. I said, okay. When J.D. went on off to work, the man called later, and I told him, I said, I'm going to have to say no for today because I said, I don't believe that's what my God would have me doing right now. And he said, that's the strangest reply I've ever heard. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm probably one of the strangest people you'd ever meet. And within a couple of weeks, a major financial disaster happened. And I thought, I missed it. I missed it. I blew my opportunity. But something inside said, just wait. Where's your faith? We were talking about faith the other night at the meeting. Where's your faith? And I said, God, I felt like I did what you'd had me to do. Now I'm going to hold you to your part of it. I did. I, you know, I think that by me wanting to do God's will, that pleases God, whether I get it or not. The fact that I'm trying to do it, and I think he'll reward effort. And so a couple of weeks went by, and J.D. got a promotion. A couple of more weeks went by, and he got a cost-of-board uh, cost-of-living increase. And with those two things together, they took care of the financial situation. You see, I didn't have to jump in there and fix it. Because, see, that's what I was planning on doing, was doing what I've always done, and that would be, I'll fix it. And God said, wait. And I did. And that was a hard period to go through, to wait. Now, I want to tell you about another miracle. J.D. needed a truck. He wanted a small truck that would be economical, one that we could afford. And I said, J.D., we can't afford a car payment, a truck payment. We can't afford a payment. And he said, well, but the old truck was the old drunk truck. And the way you kept the doors on it shut was you took those little bungee cords and you put them in the ashtray and put them in the windows. 
And that kept you from flying out as you went around the corner. But we wouldn't get him anything decent while he was drinking, and then because he'd been off work for so long before he did get a job, we were very much having to take every penny we had, and there was no money for that. And we prayed, and we asked God to direct us to the vehicle we were supposed to have. And J.D. said, I put in my order. I told him I wanted a plain vanilla truck with just a transmission and a heater. He said, I don't want anything but the bare minimum. He said, I'm not being choosy. He said, I just want something that I, that I can use. And we would go and we would look at all these lots, and there wasn't a truck that fit that description. They had a five-speed, it had a stereo, it had air conditioning, it had this, that, and the payments were astronomical. Now, J.D. was going to go on the night shift the following Monday. This was Friday morning. And we're sitting there, and we no more know what's going to happen Monday than nothing, because I was still working during that time, and with my hours, I couldn't come home and give him my car to go to work, because he had to go before I got home. So there you are. And that night, J.D. had gone to his meeting, and I got a telephone call, and the lady said, could you use, I understand you're having a hard time, and J.D. needs a vehicle. And I said, yes. And she said, well, with $2,000 help. And I said, there's no way we can pay back $2,000 loan because, I mean, you know, it'd be, by the time you added the loan with the car payment, there'd be no, she said, I don't remember saying the word loan. She said, would you take this $2,000 as a love gift? You know, the program tells me I have to learn to receive. You know, I'm big on giving, but you got to receive. Boy, that was hard. So now we had the $2,000 in cash that night. We got up the next morning. We went past the place we'd been going, and over on the side of the lot by its little lonesome stuff was this little white truck, plain vanilla. And we asked the salesman about this truck. He said, you don't want that truck. He said, it's just a stripped-down no, uh, model. It doesn't have anything but a transmission and a heater in it, for God's sake. <laughs> he said, we ordered it for Coca-Cola Company. They wanted one, and it didn't come in in time, and they got tired of waiting and got them a Toyota. And this was a Datsun. And he said, um, you know, it's just over there. He said, it's got the heavy-duty springs and all this kind of stuff. And he said, I don't know that you'd be interested in that one. And J.D. said, well, can we just drive it? And so we got in the truck, we looked at each other and went, <laughs> We drove around the block, we were crying. We knew it was our truck, that God had sent our truck. And we got back to the salesman and we asked him how much, and he said, well, being tell that was a thing, and we're trying to get it off the he said uh, $3,600. So we paid the $2,000 down, and our payments were $70 a month for a year, you know. We could afford that, you know. And we had a brand new truck. And I want you to know, he drove that truck for almost six years before he ever had to put a penny in it. And then he bought tires. Can you believe that the original tire that came on a truck would last six years? On God's truck it would. And that's the, you know, you know, it was real funny. I told him, I said, the only thing wrong about that truck, and I said, we didn't tell God was, it's awfully rough riding. It's a short wheelbase. And it just goes, and so we named the truck. And he has, it has its own little license plate. It's called Teddy. Now, you might wonder why we call it Teddy. Well, it's named after Teddy Roosevelt. See, it's a rough riding son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God has a sense of humor. Okay. 
I think that when I pray, oh, I'm going to change it. Go back to my fish tank. I was about got lost on my fish tank. I noticed that when I fed my fish, that I became God of the fish tank. I was the one that put the food on the waters. And you put just enough. If you've ever had any fish, you know you put just enough for that day. Any more than that will shower the water and the fish will die. And I begin to watch that food trickle down through that tank. And as that food trickle down, there's some that eat it on the top. There's some that eat it through the middle. And there's some that get it off the bottom. But there's always enough and everybody gets his piece. And I realized that day that no matter where I was, God was going to take care of my food and my necessities. And I never had to go back into that panic fit about finances and what was going to happen anymore. Because if I realized through my inventory and my tenth step, the only time I have financial worries is when I go out and run amok. You know, I go charge happy, you know, I have, you know, charge, you know. J.D. says that my charge cards, I can flip them like OCB papers because they're worn so thin from you. <laughs> and I, I, I can be abusive with credit. And so I know that when I get in a bind exactly who's done it, I know. And I know what to, the steps to take to correct that. If I give God those credit cards, he does not use them near like I do. Okay. Uh, I became God conscious. I began to ask God to let me see people as He sees them. This opened a whole new world for me. Looking at other people like God sees them. I did this first with my mother. And my mother, when I first started working on the relationship with her, when I would see her in my mind, I always thought of her as being a mean witch. She was formidable. I'm not kidding you. Now, mother's about this tall. But she has eyes oh, that just cut right through you. But I also realized mother wears glasses and they have extreme magnification, which makes them look sharper than what they are. I realized that. But still, when I was around her, my, I would just have a knot in my gut because I knew that I was not going to please her and that it was going to be bad. It always was. And so this girl that came down suggested that I take a look at Mother through the eyes of God. And so I prayed and I asked God to let me see Mother as he saw her. And I went over to my mother's house that day. And when I drove up in the driveway, I didn't see that mean little witch out there. I saw someone who was old, extremely frightened, someone who needed love so bad and couldn't ask for love. She was like a wounded spirit, and I had compassion for her. Now, if you've got a resentment against somebody, if you have bad feelings towards somebody, if you will pray and ask God to let you see them through his eyes, it will change how you feel about them because they're not as you see them. Because when you look through the eyes of God, you see that person as he sees them, and you look through the eyes of love and compassion and understanding. You do not look through the eyes of judgment. That's what we do. We look at somebody and judge them. God gives them understanding and love and compassion. At least that's the way he does me. And this helps me. And you know, when I am really pissed off at somebody, I refuse to pray for them. I don't want to see them through God's eyes. I want to look at them mean. <laughs> see, I know that if I do that, he'll show me different and then I'll have to change my mind. <laughs> You know, 
there's a voice inside of me that will talk to me, and it will say, you don't really want to do this. And I'll say, yes, I do. And no, you don't. Yes, I do. You really shouldn't do that. I don't care. Okay, go ahead. Suffer the consequences. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes I'm still willing to suffer the consequences. And I go ahead and do it. And when I get I said, well, you asked for it, you got it. Now drive that. You know. And I can't blame people like I used to. You know, I know that that's what I've done to myself. I can always hear God's voice when I am not practicing my character defects. Did you know that resentment will block you from hearing God? Did you know that anger will block you from hearing God? All those things. Unforgiveness. Boy, now that'll block me. And it's really funny, you know, it says, if you listen to the prayer that we use to close the, the meeting all the time, forgive as we are, you know, we get forgiven as we forgive. If I'm not willing to forgive, well, there it is. You know. I look at things like that and I'll say to myself, why do I do this to me? Why do I do this to me? I'm a big why person. And finally one day I got the answer. Because you're self-centered. That's why you do this to you. It's that self-will run riot that it talks about in the big book so much. Self gets me into all the problems. When, you know, um, it's like when you're working on your sixth and seventh step, one of the major reasons that helped me to overcome and make me willing to give up the defects was I saw how they did separate me from God. And I wanted to have that feeling. I wanted to have that feeling inside. And it took me a long time to get that feeling inside. Intellectually, I could say, God loves me and God cares for me. But I wanted to feel it inside. I wanted to know that I know on the inside. And it took a lot of practice and a lot of repetition and a lot of being willing to let go of these things that separated me from my higher power. You know, it's this salt through meditation, prayer and meditation. To salt means you've got to seek, you've got to work, you've got to go out and look for it. Say, what is God doing for me today? I can tell you this morning I got up, I walked out, and I saw a little clump of flowers that I swear weren't there yesterday. God did that for me this morning. He showed me those flowers. I noticed there's a great big fern growing out there by itself. My God, I have those growing at home. have to nurture those things. It's just growing out there in the wild. You know, I couldn't believe it. I swear were you. I mean, it's right out in front of my door. Why, why didn't I see it before? I guess I was so busy looking to make sure there wasn't a snake on the path. I don't know. I'm from Arkansas. We got lots of snakes on the path, you know. And I thought, you know, the, there's a piece of rope on a piece of tarpaulin that covers a wood pile, and I saw that piece of rope and jumped three foot. <laughs> it was just a little spooky at first. Now that I'm getting used to it, you know, it's time to go. And that's that the thing. Now, I looked out there this morning, and I said, did you know something? There's a four-leaf clover out there, and I didn't have to pick it. I could leave it alone, take a picture of it. But I can always hear God's voice when I am in the right spiritual frame of mind, when I'm not holding anything against you, when I am not expecting a bunch of stuff from you, when I am just sitting back and let God hold me. You know, sometimes when I hurt, I like for people to be around and say it'll be okay and all. But if I hurt real bad, I like to get my music and I meditate and I crawl up in God's lap and I sit on his knee and I let him put his arms around me and I let him rock me because it feels so good. 
And he gives me that comfort that I need, that I can't get that kind of comfort from anybody in this world. I like to start off my day with a positive. And when I first came in the program, it was real hard because I was so programmed into the negative. So I've done a lot of mirror talk over the years. I don't know if y'all are familiar with mirror talk. But I talked to myself in the mirror, and I would write myself notes all over my house that said, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me. Everywhere you went, said, God loves me. Because, you see, I didn't know that God loved me, and I was trying if I, I was trying to put the affirmations in my mind so that it would become real, so that the repetition after a period of time would become gut level, and then I would know. And I would look at myself in the mirror, and I'd say, Good morning, Mary Pearl. There's nothing going to happen to you today that we can't handle together because I love you, God. And I would say it out loud because what you hear on your ears makes more impact than what you read. It's what you hear that comes really strong. And so I would start my day with that. And you know, the days that I didn't bother to take time to do that didn't seem to go as right for me. Because I was making that contact. It's like making a telephone call to somebody that's really far away. Once you get the connection, don't hang up. And you see, that's what I did all my life. I would call God in a crisis. I was a crisis communicator. You know, I'll handle it. You know, but then I go, oh, God, it's mad. You know, okay, God, I need some help over here. You know, instead of just saying, God, I'm going to give it to you and let you do it. You know, I'd say, God, you know, I'll let you have this little piece over here. And then when it would get straightened out, so halfway, I'd say, thank you, I can take it now. And I did this for a long time because, you know, when you get a routine going, on uh, going to work every morning, I talked to God all the way to work in the car. You know, for a while I thought people were going to look at me like I was crazy. I realized that I wasn't that darn important. Real people really didn't give a darn about me. You know, one of the girls in my group used to carry an infant seat with a doll strapped in it so that when she talked, that people wouldn't think she's crazy. And I said, I got a news for you. People might think you're more crazy when you grow up and leave that kid strapped in that car. I said, and I can tell a doll from a kid, believe it or not. But it's funny what we'll do to ourselves. There goes Betty. Okay, God would put ideas in my head. You know, I thought that everybody had a voice inside of them that was saying, Hello there, this is God. You know, and sometimes I have heard the inner voice and sometimes I do not. But most often than not, thoughts go through here that are not my thoughts. And I recognize that that's not my thought and that something has put it in there. And I try to, to meditate on that. A good thought is like a prayer. You know, for me in the beginning, that's about the best I could do. In the morning, that's how I started off with prayer. I said, please. That was my prayer for the day. And at night, I said, thank you, Pudge. Thank you much. Because I didn't know anything else how to pray. And I'm still not into big, long prayers. That's the reason I'm so grateful for the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer. Because it says it so concisely. And it's something that I can remember. I had a point in my life about so five or six years ago that was one of the lowest points in my program. I had gotten so good and so wonderful. I don't know if it's happened to any of you, but it happens to some of the old timers. And you get to where everybody comes to you for all the answers and everybody comes to you for all the this and the that and your ego gets a little out of it. 
And the first thing you know is that you can't ask anybody when you're having a problem because you're supposed to have the answers. You know. And I felt like that if I told my group how much problem I was having, that they'd think that I didn't know how to work my program and then it was going to make everything that I had told them invalid. You know. I got into this ego thing really bad and I wouldn't tell anybody how bad I was hurting and I continued to hurt until it got to the point I couldn't stand it. And one night I just was there at the house by myself and I had got on my knees and that didn't seem to get it either because you see I had lost my contact with God and I didn't know how to tell anybody that. And so finally I laid flat on the floor and I said, God, I'm powerless. My life is unmanageable again in a big way and I hurt so bad. What do I need to do? And I knew instantly what I had to do. I had to go to my group and tell them the truth of where I was at. And I said, anything but that, God. You know, oh, don't make me have to do that. And I went over there to my group and I told them the truth about where I was. And I took the risk because, see, inside I felt they weren't going to love me anymore when they knew. They were not going to love me. They were going to think that I was a fraud and a phony. And so... When the meeting was over, this one girl came up to me who had always been really standoffish. And she said, you know something, Mark? I love you tonight as I've never loved you before because you became real tonight. She said, you hurt too. And I realized then that when I'm having a hard time now, I share that with my group. I share it with the people around me when I am having a hard time. I share my joy, but I also share my sorrow. You know, we deserve to tell the truth. And the truth is that you come in the program, and yes, we are given tools, but you don't skip the light fantastic forever. Because reality is there are going to be problems. There are going to be situations. Now, I had a hard time knowing the difference between an aggravation and an irritation and a problem. I don't know if you have this problem or not. Okay? I would take an aggravation or an irritation and I'd put the word problem on it and magnify it. And then it would terrorize me more. And I found this out when my television blew up. The man came over to see about the TV and he pronounced it D-O-A. <laughs> and I said, oh no! And he said, what do you mean, no, no? And I said, my God, I don't, it's right before Christmas. I said, I don't need this kind of problem. And he said, problem? He said, lady, this is an aggravation maybe or an irritation, but it won't be a problem unless you make it one. I said, thank you very much. And when he left, I said, well, God, you got me again. But I had to stop and think about that, and I thought, this isn't a problem, this isn't. You know, what's really a problem? Problems, if you want to get down to it, are those things that are life-threatening. You know, those are big problems. But there's a lot of aggravations and irritations that happen in this world that are not problems until you make them that. And I said, well, God, I tell you what, I enjoy looking at the cable during the wee hours of the morning, but if this is not supposed to be, it's okay with me, and that's all right. Because I don't want to take money and spend money because it's coming up Christmas and I just don't want to spend my money that way. Well, a couple of weeks later, my sister was over at the house and she said something about the TV and I said, well, the TV's dead. 
And she said, well, why, and aren't you going to get another one? I said, well, not right now. I thought we'd wait after the first year, perhaps. I said, I wanted to have Christmas there, funny. And I said, we don't watch that much TV during Christmas time anyway. You know, we have friends in and out, this kind of thing. And she says, well, I've been dying to know what to give you this year. She said, let me give you all the TV, and then I won't have to worry about it. And I said, that sounds fine to me. I said, do your thing. So you see, it wasn't a problem. And it was handled so neatly, you know, and I said, that was really neat how that all worked out. And if I can just remember that. I had a real hard time dealing with mechanical things for a number of years until I let go and let God take care of them for me. And I would always just go berserk when something would break. Just go berserk. Things are supposed to last forever. Forever. And one night I'm sitting there, and this I say this has been several years ago, and I was sitting there. And Daddy was coming in that night, and I'd fix his supper around 3 o'clock in the morning. And I turned off my stove, and it didn't turn off. Now, it's a gas burner. And you, believe it or not, it was the burner with the brain. <laughs> brain damages. And our house is rampant, you know. And I turned it off, and it went all the way around, but it didn't turn it off. And I'm sitting there looking at it, and I'm thinking, now, that could be dangerous, you know. If that goes out in the middle of the night, that could be really, really dangerous, you know. I wonder how, so I could, there's an emergency number at the gas company. So I called, and the guy said, well, now, we do gas meters. I don't do stoves. He said, uh, you'll have to wait till 8 o'clock in the morning. Or he said, I understand your uh, concern. He said, I tell you what, let me put you on hold, and I'll call one of the guys who works on the appliances and see if he has any suggestions on what to do here. I said, thank you. I was on hold, and all of a sudden I heard this. And then I smelled this funny smell, and my TV had just melted down. <laughs> a circuit had gone out in the TV. You know, I ran over there and plugged it, smoke pouring out of the back of it. I ran back to the phone, and he comes in, and he said, I'm sorry, but the guy said he'd have to take a look at that. And I said, well, how are you on TV? <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I've been on hold here about my stove. My TV just burned out in the living room. And he said, well, you sure are taking it calm. I said, yeah, I am, aren't I? <laughs> I said, it's getting plum funny here, boy. <laughs> and J.D. came home. He said, how was your night? I said, you wouldn't believe it. I said, the stove was going and the TV won't. <laughs> and he just laughed. But, you know, that was a big improvement. That was a big improvement. You see, God was beginning to do for me to give me a sense of humor in things. God began to give me a sense of humor on how to deal with things. Now, I had a, one of the girls that I sponsored gave me a beautiful pair of sterling earrings for Christmas one year. And I loved those. They were big. They were heavy. They were just gorgeous. And last Christmas, I was out at the mall looking at stuff, and I tied on a sweater at Penny's. <laughs> Wasn't it serious? And uh, when I got back out to the car, I recognized one of my earrings was missing, and it was one of these, you know, you just hook in. Instead of the old-fashioned ones that we used to have that locked, you know, I liked those better. But anyway, I got there, and I had this other girl with me, and um, I said, oh, I've lost one of my earrings. And I said, these are very special because I said, Sandy gave them to me. And so I went back in, and I tried to retrace my footsteps where I had been in the mall, and I looked around, and I went to Penny's, and I told them I might have lost it in the dressing room. I went, and it was not there. But somehow or another, I had a feeling that it might be there at Penny's. I don't know why. 
And so I left my card with the sales girl, and I told her, I said, if perchance you find this earring, and I showed her the other one, I said, this is what it looks like. I said, I'd really appreciate it because they're very special to me. Well, you know, I got to thinking, I wasn't good with one earring, though, and I realized there's a lot of people wearing one earring this day and time, you know. And I said, well, and so I just, and I pray aloud, aloud a lot. I'm not self-conscious about that anymore. And so I just got in the car, and I said, well, my God, I'd appreciate it if you'd find that earring. i tell you what, I'm going to give them to you. And if I'm supposed to have them back, I'll let you give them back, and I'll go on. And I went on and had a good day. And right before I got home that day, the lady that was with me, she said, You know, I, I hear you in the meetings and all, but I saw you working it today, even on something like an earring. She said, You do work this program, don't you? And I said, Well, yeah, it's a habit. It's a good habit. It's one of the positive habits I've developed over the years. And so I went on, and uh, three weeks later, now three weeks, how many times do you reckon they clean the store in three weeks? It's more than my house, but... <laughs> anyway, I got this call, and this woman says, You're not going to believe this, but we found your earring. And I said, Fantastic! And she said, Excuse me, she said, I said to myself yesterday when I saw your card sitting on my desk, If we hadn't found it by now, I might as well throw this card away, and I forgot to. Okay? Now, I've been looking off and on for a black pleated wool skirt. Couldn't find one. Just plain black, my size, couldn't find one. And so I went that night to pick up that earring, and what do you think was hanging right there? It's hanging right there at the cash register. In my size, one black wool skirt. She said, we found this the other day back here. I was asking her, I said, is this put back for somebody? And she said, no, we found it. said, evidently it got lost in the shuffling around and got out of pocket, and it's the only one we have like that. If you'd like it, we'll give you for $15. And I said, God, you really got a sense of humor. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. You know, things like that. And the thing that I told her, I said, you just don't realize how good God is to me. And, you know, I'm not ashamed to tell people, God's doing this for me, or God does that for me. It doesn't bother me anymore. Um... God shows me His love. If God didn't love me, I wouldn't be here with y'all this weekend. Do you realize that I get to do things that a lot of people do not get to do, and it's not because I'm special? It's because God loves me. I want you to know that it, things have changed so drastically at our house, so very drastically, that uh, the man who would not mow the grass, I, I mean, he could care less if I'd had to have a map to find the front door. <laughs> I have the most beautiful yard in our neighborhood. People drive by our place to take a look, and it's nothing I've done, because I don't do yards. But I want you to know that God has been so good to me. I have such a beautiful yard. I have big trees, nothing like these, nothing, you know, that's 300 foot tall, but I've got 40 and 50 foot. I've got a couple of those in the front yard. I've got some small ones. I've got tulips and jonquils in the spring. I have crocus. I have all these little flowers and stuff that come up that make your yard, and we're just banks of thrift, which is a purple flower that we have that grows a ground cover. And then J.D. decided that he would make him a serenity garden. I didn't know what he was talking about. And you're not going to believe this, but his roses are all from Medford, Oregon, from J&T. So we, we're helping support your economy here. <laughs> and we have over 150 of those little babies that we have gathered over the years. And we have an enclosed patio, and then we have an outside patio. But between them, we have this giant rose garden with all these beautiful, beautiful hybrid roses. And in the middle, he has a fountain. 
a beautiful fountain. And in the mornings, I go out on my enclosed patio, and I sit at my glass top table, and I listen to the running water. It's not near like this, but I listen to the running water, and I can sit there. And, you know, that's a gift from God. That's a truly a gift from God. I never dreamed life could be so good. I never dreamed life could be so good. I never dreamed there were so many beautiful places in this country. You know, I never dreamed it could be. It's just as beautiful here. It's just like uh, a picture postcard, and I'm so grateful. You know, I was here earlier this year, and I didn't get to see all of this. You know, it was raining and snowing, and God, see, God has been so good. He made it all pretty. Hope you all know that. It may rain when I leave. <laughs> now, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of working this step, these steps, you know, that's a guarantee. You're going to have a spiritual awakening if you work the steps. So many times people are on step one and two screaming, Where's my spiritual awakening? I believe it talks about it in step 12. We tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Carrying the message to others, I tell you one of the best and neatest things in the whole world has been the area of sponsorship. I am real strong on sponsorship. Everybody here got a sponsor? Who doesn't? You've been having problems. Mm-hmm. Sponsorship has been an area for me that I have grown so much in sponsoring other people. I had no patience, no tolerance, absolutely zilch when I came in. And they tell me today, even though my patience and tolerance is limited, it's a hell of a lot more than I came with. But I can have a lot of patience with someone who's trying. I have very little patience with people who are taking up my time and who are going nowhere because they're not working. I really don't have a lot of time for that. But for people who are trying, I'll walk through hell with you, but I'll not drag you one step of the way. And I love it because, you see, I couldn't have kids, but now i got kids. And as a lady pointed out to me one day, she said, they're your children of the Spirit. Oh, I love that. Because they are my kids. And I couldn't love them any more had I given birth to them. And did you know that some of the neat benefits of that is, it's not just the obvious that you have the people and you love them and they love you. My God, that in itself would be enough. But we sit around and we talk. Now, sometimes we have what we call sponsorship family meetings over at the house. And we have God is our understanding meetings. And this is where we get together and we share where we are with our higher power at that time. And you'll find people in all different stages of spiritual growth that are talking about it freely and openly. And uh, we talk about our God by name, which we don't do in the meetings, of course. But we're free to do this when we have our sponsorship meetings. And everybody tries to help everybody by sharing. And we just share where we are. And if you want to go this way or you want to go that way, it's fine. But it gives everybody a closeness. Because when you start sharing about your God to one another, there's a super special closeness that comes in this situation. Well, we were sitting there one night and we were talking after one of these meetings about did you ever have a dream or a fantasy that when you were a little kid that you really wished had come true and it never did? And I said, yeah. When I was a little kid, we used to have, live, well, we still have the livestock show and rodeo, state, at, state fair every year. And uh, they had marching bands. And it was the first time I'd ever been to the parade. And there was an all-black high school that had uh, marching majorettes. And I'd never seen anything like that. And now let me tell you, them black girls could strut. 
and they were moving on, and I got fascinated watching them, and they had on those boots with the big tassels on them, you know. And I thought, you know, if I had a pair of those boots, I could walk like that. I just know I could. And so every year for Christmas, I'd ask Mama and Daddy for a drum major red hat and boots and a baton. That's what I wanted more than anything, and I never got it. And I asked Mother about that one day, and I said, how come I never got the boots? And she said, well, you were such a tomboy, I knew you wouldn't keep them clean. And I thought, what a dumb reason not to give somebody something. But that's my mother, because she's very logical about things like that. And I could accept that that would be a, a good reason to her. To a kid, it was a dumb reason, you know. And so we were sitting there talking about it, and we went ahead, and the whole room shared all about their little dreams and fantasies, and we laughed together, and we cried together, and we had some fun that night. Well, a year or so after that, it was around Christmas time, one of my girls called, and she said, I'm having a problem. Can I come by before the meeting? And I said, sure. Well, when she came by, there was about 40 or 50 of them came in my living room. And I got my boots, and I've got my big leather hat with a big tassel on it, and I've got one of them big batons, you know. Now, no eight- or nine-year-old kid could ever appreciate them like a 40-year-old woman did. Because that was so touching to me, because, you see, they love me enough to make my dream come true. It was a silly thing. Might have been... But did you know I wore them and led them to the meeting that night in March? <laughs> and I can tell you, sometimes, you know, when you get the pinky punkies and you just start a feeling low, I can go in that closet and I can bring out my stuff and I can put them on and know how much I'm loved. To know how much I'm loved. This year for Christmas, they outdid themselves. You see, I've been working on fear for the last year or so. Removal of various fears. Um, the first was the fear of tornadoes. Now, we live in Tornado Alley, and if y'all have never experienced a tornado, let me tell you, it is a terrifying experience. But what is more terrifying is the fear of the tornado. The tornado would come through once in a while, but every time the symbol went on to TV, I had one. And I recognized what I was doing was feeding that fear. I was feeding that fear, and I'd watch that symbol on the TV. And then I'd turn on the radio, and I'd hear it here, and I'd hear it there, and I'd get my map, and I'd plot the course, you know. Man, I was, by the time it got there, I was just, ah! you know, like that. I was a nut by the time that it, when the siren would go off, and I mean, my heart would just go, and I'd go right into tachycardia. I mean, it was terrible. And I was always there by myself. And I'd grab my dogs, and we'd be in the closet, and they'd be barking and growling at one another, and I'd be quivering and shaking. And the storm would come, you know, and it would be on the other side of town or something. And I'm grateful it wasn't over me, but nonetheless, I just hated that because it was like it was happening to me every time. And I asked God, if he would, to please remove that fear of storms from me. And I began to see the things that I was doing that was feeding the fear, and I quit doing those things, and I realized that my fear level began to drop. Now, that's not to say I was doing skip-de-maloo when the siren went off, but I was not into a panic already. And even now, when the siren goes off, I don't like it, but I am okay with it. And I do what is necessary to take cover, but I don't do it like a raven-ass nut, you know? <laughs> One afternoon, my sister and I had gone out to eat pizza, and when we came out of the pizza place, the wind was blowing, the rain was coming down in torrents, and I was mad because I was getting wet. And I got over to the car, and I could barely open the car door. The wind was blowing so hard. And I told her, I said, can you believe this crap? Can you believe this? I said, here we are out in this mess. I am getting drowned. Can you believe it? 
We got on, we was going down the road, and we could not drive. It was just so windy and so rainy, I couldn't see the drive, so I pulled over. And a few minutes I told her, I said, I can't believe all this mess. And I turned on the radio, and I couldn't hardly get anything. And so in a few minutes, we went on down the road after the storm passed, and we were going down, and we got closer into town. They were talking about the tornado that just happened. <laughs> And a half a block from where I was in the pizza place there, you know, getting out, trying to get out of the car, the church was gone. And I had seen this crap in the air, and I thought, I wonder what all that is. <laughs> so you see, I know now that God will take care of me in the middle of one, so there's no need to really be that fearful about it anymore. You know, you like that? You like that? <laughs> okay, another fear was the dentist. Now, last year, Mother had what we thought was a heart attack, and so I was rushing her off to the hospital, and when I got there in the emergency room, it was quite a scene. Mother, I knew she wasn't in too bad a shape because she kept saying, They're not taking off my brassiere! <laughs> in a little while, in a while, this big, tall nurse, she must have been six foot tall, came down the hall slinging Mama's brassiere. It was like she had really done something. I got a charge out of it. But as I'm sitting there in the waiting room, waiting to find out, I felt something and my ceiling had fallen out of my tooth. And I said, my God. Now, I had not been to the dentist in 25 years. Because, you see, I was afraid of dentists. I got hurt at the dentist's office. So what my normal pattern was, you get a toothache, what you do is you realize that it hurts. And then after a while, you can't stand to have hot in your mouth, so you don't put anything hot in your mouth. And then after a while, you can't stand anything cold in your mouth, so you don't put anything cold in your mouth. And then after a while, you can't stand your tongue in your mouth. Well, there's not too much you can do about that. So then you have to go to the dentist, and he said, you waited too late, and you lose a tooth. Now, that's, that's how you go to the dentist. So my fear was causing me to lose my teeth. And so when this filling fell out, I thought, oh, my God. And then I thought, well, you know, you can do what you've always done, or you can change it. You have a choice. And I said, God, what to do, what to do? Well, they put Mother in a room, and I went on home, and I opened up the phone book, and there was a big ad that said, We cater to cowards. <laughs> I said, Hot dog, I found my dentist, you know. And so I called, and I thought, Well, now maybe they can take me in three or four days. And I told the woman that I just, uh, I told her about the truth, and that the food just come out, and she said, Well, if you come right now. I said, Right now? <laughs> See, God knew I'd chicken out, you know. So I went over there, and I ran up, and I was so scared. My heart was just going 100 miles an hour, and I sat down, and I heard the bathroom. And there's one of my babies is a local disc jockey. And I heard her saying, have a good day today. And her voice is so calm. She's got a beautiful, beautiful professional voice. It's so much different. It's really funny when you've got someone that you work with like that because they'll call you on the phone. Ah! Hold on a minute. Say like 94, thank you. You know, she said, I said, how do you do that? <laughs> oh, Lord. But anyway, I heard her voice. And that was a calming thing to hear her voice. And I talked to the woman and I told her. And so they wrote super chicken on the outside of my file. <laughs> and I went in. And the last time I'd been into a dentist's office, they had all those things hanging down that were so scary. They don't have those anymore. I don't know what. Maybe they come up out of the floor. I don't know. But anyway, I had this beautiful little chaise lounge thing to lay in. 
and I got in and sat in it, and I was just as rigid as a poker, you know, and they leaned me back, and they had this sign on the ceiling, and it said, God, grant me the serenity to accept me. I found the right dentist, and I've been going back regularly every six months. In fact, I've got an appointment for next week when I get back, and I can do it without fear because they don't hurt me, you know. And see, God put them there to take care of me. I was in North Carolina here a few weeks ago, and another one of my old fillings fell out, and part of my tooth was broken. And uh, I kept saying, God, just get me home now so I can get to my dentist. I don't want to have to do this and deal with somebody else. And, you know, that never hurt at all. And I got home, and they fixed it. It was not a big deal. But you see, I was the one who always made a big deal out of those things. Okay, one of the last fears that I have of the unnatural type fears was the fear of heights. Scared to death of heights. And then slowly but surely, I've been forcing myself to do the outside elevators, to go and look. Now, like this past weekend, I was in Rock Springs, Wyoming, at the Flaming Gorge. I'm looking down 3,000 feet going, oh, it's nice. <laughs> but that's an improvement. When I saw the Grand Canyon, I did it on my belly. I had to crawl and go, that's nice, and then back up because I was so terrified of falling in. Now, I know that doesn't sound realistic to some, but if you've got that feeling of pitching forward, you know what I'm talking about. It's just a real feeling. And so the kids love me so much that I sponsor that for Christmas this year, their present is a hot air balloon ride. Now, that's a very, very nice gift. We have uh, an hour hot air balloon ride over the city, a video of the event, and a landing party. They're going to make a national event out of this deal, you know. I said, it's going to be cute there. You know, there's the, and there's the star of the show with wet pants. <laughs> you know, I can just see it. We've had to postpone the trip twice because of the weather conditions, because it is a licensed pilot. And the, the, we had scheduled to go Mother's Day. And uh, he told me we might end up in Egypt. <laughs> because we were having 60-mile-an-hour winds, the front was coming through. So the 5th of June is our next takeoff time. So the, maybe the next time I see you, I'll be able to give you a report if I pass or whatever. <laughs> Practicing the principles in all my affairs. I tell you, I loved your subject last night about working the steps at home. Because that is the most important. If you can't work them at home, you don't have much program going for you. And uh, you might not like to hear that, but that's what I feel. Um, in our house, we've got two program people. And we did not always work well together, okay? Um, we were so sick for so long together that we got so maladjusted, then we had to learn how to readjust. And finally, we had to scrap that whole relationship. We just had to scrap it and let it die and develop a new relationship between the two of us. And communication has been a big part of that. And one of the things that I realized uh, here a few years ago was the fact that when we did not communicate well, and I couldn't understand, there was always a lot of misunderstanding about what he meant, what I meant, and you'd say something, he'd get real mad, and you'd wonder why he got mad, because you couldn't figure out why he took it that away, and then he'd say something, and, then you'd, and it would just be a disaster, and you couldn't figure out what's going on. Well, I went to a workshop on communication, I found out what was going on. J.D. talks in feelings. I was talking in logic. And the two don't match. You see, J.D. would say, my husband's a dreamer. And he would say stuff like, I think I'll build a party barge. <laughs> and immediately I feel fear. Because I know that when J.D. starts on these projects, we're talking lots of dollars and maybe they never get finished. And, 
You see, I'm going on all right on the inside. So what do I tell him, God, that scares me? No, I'm not going to tell him that scares me. What do I tell him? That's stupid. <clears throat> now, he's just told me a dream. I'm saying, that's stupid. I wouldn't like people tell me my dreams are stupid. But you see, I'm not identifying anymore. I'm not in logic. I'm in feelings. And then I'm turning around and trying to get you out of what you're doing and over here where you won't threaten me. And, and all that did was cause confusion. And he'd say, you don't ever want me to have anything I want to have. And I'd say, that's not true. And he'd say, yes, it is. No, it's not. And then we'd get into it, you know. And we went on with that for a long time until, I like say, when I came back from that workshop, I told him, I said, J.D., I have not been sharing feelings with you. I've been sharing logic. And I said, I guess I was afraid I would get hurt again if I shared the feelings. So I wouldn't share the feelings. And he said, well, I didn't know what the problem was. And I said, well, I'm going to try to share feelings, and I know that I won't be able to do it all. And I'm not going to do it right because I haven't done it, but we're going to try. And when I began to make the effort just to meet him when he was doing feelings, and then I would say to him, let's do logic. <laughs> and then he would share with me. It was sort of like we gave each other the code so that we didn't have to guess anymore. And there were some times that I needed to tell him how I felt, and I didn't want anything back from him other than the just telling. And I would say, J.D., I need to tell you how I feel about something, and it's not up for discussion. And then I would express how I feel. Thank you very much. You see, I wasn't expecting any feedback from him, and I, was, I didn't want any hassle. I just wanted to be able to say, this is how I feel. And we found that we begin to communicate better. Well, our communication has now gotten to the silent stage. Because it was real funny, he came in last week, or last Monday or Tuesday, I guess, must be Tuesday. And he came in, and I was sitting on the back step looking out into the patio at all my plants. I got them in from the greenhouse now, and I said, oh, I just love them. And I was sitting there, and he was going, looking so sad and everything. And I looked at him, and I said, don't ask. You know, my thing is, what's the matter? Let me fix it. You know, instead I just went. You know how as a little kid you used to play uh, the little game where you mock the other person, you know, you imitate them? I began to take the look, and he'd move his hand, and I'd move my hand. And then he'd, and all of a sudden he looked over at me, and he did it, and I did it real quick like that too, you know. And then he got, and I could see he was trying real hard not to laugh. <laughs> and anyway, the next day he came, he skipped across the floor, coming in. And he was up there and he said, Hi, isn't it a wonderful day? And I said, Yeah, it is. And he said, I didn't want that crap again today. <laughs> he said, If I look that bad, throw dirt on me next time. <laughs> but you see, we're able to have humor in our marriage without getting into those old games of what's the matter? And he'll say nothing. And I'll say, I know it's something. And he'll say nothing. I'll say, What's the matter? You don't want to talk about it? You know, and we play those old stupid games. We don't have to do that anymore, and that's so, so nice. Oh. Let me see here. Oh, did you know sometimes I may be doing the very best I can, and it may not be worth a damn. And I know that there's other people that have that problem, too. And there's times when I am with other people, and when their behavior is not good, that's just like with my mother right now, I understand that my mother's doing the very best she can right now. And most people don't enjoy being miserable. I'm not one that does, and she's not doing one. 
Um, I think pretty much we have talked about as uh, much as we have time for this weekend. I am grateful that y'all allowed me to come and share with you on the 12 steps because they have changed my life and they continue to change my life as I work them. I may not be the best me, best me I'll ever be, but I'm the best me I've ever been to this point in time. I'm not perfect by a long shot, but I'm not nearly as sick as I once was. There's definite progress in my life. I can be comfortable with myself most of the time. I can be comfortable with my higher power. I'm not afraid. I know I'm loved. I know I've been forgiven for the things I've done. I am greatly blessed. As a woman, I am greatly blessed. My name is Mary Pearl, and I'm a grateful recovering Al-Anon. I am grateful, so grateful, to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, not only for my husband's recovery, but for giving us the 12 steps to recover by also. I am so grateful for the wonderful healing in our fellowship of Al-Anon. Thank you again.